We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. This is number 10 in the Culture Podcast brought to you with World Strides Excel. World Strides Excel are the industry leader in international soccer tours with over 15 years experience delivering tours for a wide range of clientele, teams and coaches. Here's how it works. You pick a country or countries and their experts will customize a trip that includes competitive matches, training sessions with international coaches, tickets to professional games, sightseeing and much more. They work above and beyond to offer a level of quality support and service including financial assistance, liability coverage, flights and hassle-free travel. So we're not only partnering with World Strides to bring you these series of culture podcasts, we're also working alongside them to organize the first ever Modern Soccer Coach Education Tour to Barcelona on February 6th to the February 12th. The trip will feature coaching clinics, full day academy visits, workshops, stadium tours, and of course, a trip to the new camp to watch Barcelona. So really, really excited about that. And we'll have the link up soon for coaches to register and get involved. So today's podcast guest is Laurie Sanchez. Laurie coached Northern Ireland for three years between 2004 and 2007, taking them from 124th in the world rankings to number 27, beating England and Spain along the way. He also managed Wickham Wanderers, Sligo, Barnet, and then in the Premier League with Fulham. A big reason why I wanted to speak to Laurie was actually down to his playing experience with Wimbledon from 1984 to 1994, where he scored the winner in the FA Cup final against the mighty Liverpool in 1988. There's two cultures that have always fascinated me. and um, The first one would have been in the 1990s with the Chicago Bulls, and the second one has been 1980s with that Wimbledon team. So the Bulls culture was built on big, big players and the Wimbledon culture was built on big, big characters. And it was at a time that I was learning the game and growing up and really taking an interest and studying it. And I was always fascinated why this group of players that had a smaller stadium and had a smaller fan base than everyone else would always spoil the party and would always achieve a lot more than clubs with a lot more resources. And as I've got older, and started moving on to the coaching side. I've studied a lot more of that Wimbledon culture to see what made them special. There's documentaries been on about it. I've read Dennis Wise's book, Vinnie Jones's book. I met Clive Goodyear, who was one of the players a few years ago, and I was pestering him about what made it special, what made it special. So really excited to speak to Laurie about it and kind of tie it into coaching and his coaching experience, asking him, could you transfer that culture in today's game? What made that culture special? Why did so many of that team go on to play for big clubs or go on to achieve great things in their lives? But they weren't really childhood prodigies. They, they were all late developers. And the toughness about that culture, 
So there's so many things about that culture that fascinated me and I wanted to get Laurie on and, and get his insight on what, what it was like inside that culture and then what he took from that culture onto his coaching side as well. So I think you'll really enjoy this. Laurie was, was first class with his time and his insight and a lot of great stuff here for coaches. So hope you enjoy. As always, let me know what you think. Shoot me a tweet at Gary Kernin, Instagram at Gary Kernin. Leave it a rating on the iTunes page before you shoot off as well. would be very, very appreciative. Thanks so much for listening. Here's Laurie. Enjoy. Laurie, thanks so much for joining me today for the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. Excited to have you on. Thank you for um, inviting me. I'm going to start with the 88 Cup Final, of course. Remember it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Predictable. Long time ago. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sat in my garden as I'm talking to you. And I moved into my house the week after, so I know exactly how long ago it is that... Um, I, I moved to this house because um, it's, it's relevant to the cup final. 30 years this summer, which is unbelievable, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, I remember it was the first cup final that I watched. How, how, old were you, how old were you then? I was eight years old. They say that eight is about the first time you can remember a cup final. When I look back now, I had no idea of what type of game it was at that young age, like the, the two contrasting styles and then how dominant Liverpool were. No, I mean, people forget. I mean, I, when I speak to players, or I, you know, when I was manager and spoke to players, you know, over the last, people forget 20, I mean, the fact they've never won the league title is amazing, but in the 80s, in the late 70s, early 80s, Liverpool were the dominant team, not just in the in, in England, but in Europe. Um, but for their expulsion from, um, or but for the expulsion of British teams after Heysel from, from Europe, they'd have probably accumulated another, another couple if not, you know, two or three more European Cups to their name and be right up there at the top of the top of the standard. But, um, you know, it's it's uh, yeah, it's it, it was it. They were the they were. I keep saying they were the Man they were the Man United, Arsenal, Chelsea of their day. But they, were, they that team rolled into one. You know, those three teams rolled into one. How much tactical preparation went into that specific game back then? There was a lot. I mean, people forget, despite the fact you know people tagged us as a ragtag you know, team. I mean, we had a lot of good players in our team, a lot that went on to be internationals thereafter. But we also had in Don Howe, the England coach. He was, he worked, he was assistant manager at Wimbledon and he was he was the English coach at the, at the same time. So, you know, we, we did an awful lot of tactical work. I mean, I remember when Don joined Wimbledon, he said, I don't particularly like how you play because we are very direct, we are very physical, we were a little bit, we, we pushed the rules to what they could be used for. And he said, I'm not particularly enamoured with the way you play, having come from the Arsenal school of thinking, you know. But he said, what I will do as a coach is I will try and attempt to make you better at what you do do because you have such belief in it. And he did sessions around, um, you know, that, that would benefit what we were doing and make us more efficient at it, if you want. And, you know, I always say to people, I mean, obviously Don sadly passed away now, but I think Don learned as much in his two years at Wimbledon than he probably did in other places because it was such a culture shock to him about what, what we were doing. Um, so a lot of preparation went to that final, you know, specifically they had John Barnes, who at the time was PFA player of the year, league managers player of the year, the best player in the country at the time. They had Beardsley, they had Aldrich. I mean, their, their team was full of international, Hansen and Ablett at the back. You know, that they were they had quality coming out of them. We did an awful lot of work about stopping them playing out from the back, which people forget did happen in the old days. It wasn't just, um, it isn't a modern phenomenon that people play out from the back, but Liverpool had people like Hansen who was, you know, superb on the ball, and they liked to play through him. So we stopped, we stopped that line of a, that line of coming out for them, 
Um, we stopped John Barnes, who was in his pomp at the time, from being, you know, doing what he did best um, by doubling up on him. And we did we did lots of tactical work with regard to Liverpool. I mean, it wasn't just turn up and beat them because um, even in those days, that wasn't you know that wasn't the way things were done. I watched the post game interviews last night. Very very funny, just how different it was back then. But interesting when Don Howe and Bobby Gold came on. Don said. He, he had a bit of a pop at um, at the BBC guys. He's like, people look down their nose at people who want to work and graft. Do you think we still do that today with some forms of football? You know, the thing that made me smile the, the, the most was that when Leicester won the league, because Leicester were direct. They had the worst, I say the worst, they had the least possession of any team in the Premier League that season. But they played it back to front very quickly. They had a forward in Vardy that was very, very quick and very direct. And they upset a lot of teams. I mean, they won the league by 10 points, people forget. Um, so we were, I mean, we were, uh, we, we didn't help ourselves to a certain extent. We, we were rugged and we were big. We were a big team. We were very physical. We were brilliant at set plays, both offensively and defensively. We did all the ugly stuff. We had the long throw, we had a long throw. We had did all the ugly stuff in football that now you see coming back into fashion to a certain extent. I see Liverpool are now an employed a long ball coach. You know, uh, um, we were we we had Vinny, Vinny, oh, I wouldn't say he was one of the first, but he certainly, his throw was was quite tremendous. And that we got a lot of flick-ons and goals from that type of thing. Set plays that, you know, coming with England in, during the World Cup about all oh, set plays. We knew they were important 30 years ago. We, we were experts at set plays. We scored a, far, a large percentage of our goals by by being big and strong and knowing what we were doing in set plays. We had people like Dennis Wise, who was an excellent te- technician in those days. Um, you know, he, he could put the ball on a sixpence. So a lot of things that, pe- it's funny because people always think modern football is the best football and that before that there was nothing. Uh, it's a bit like the Premier League, that there didn't exist football 100 years before that. Of course there existed football. Of course there existed good coaches. Of course there existed ways of doing stuff um, prior to what's being done now. Pressing at the front. We used to press at the front all the time. We we press from the front big time. We chased teams down. We cut off goalkeepers so they couldn't pass back to their goalkeeper. We locked defend we locked fullbacks into into their into their um when they when they're facing their own goal back into their little court so they couldn't turn and get out. We did all the things that you see today and, you, and it does make me laugh to think, you know, it's all considered new stuff. Um, because I'm thinking, well, it's not that new, that's for sure. <laughs> that, that culture, that crazy gang culture. People talk about the class of '92, but you know, I'm I'm fascinated with a group of people who, from lower league, that went on to play for their country, captain their country, manage their country, world record transfer fees, captain Chelsea, Hollywood movies. W- what was so special of what produced those types of characters? It's a strange one. I mean, I, people always ask me this. We, I, I just think sometimes in life. It comes together, uh, a unique group of individuals come together at a unique club managed by a unique person just just at the right time. And and we we all came together from various backgrounds, from Vinnie Hodcarrier in Watford, from Fash, sons of Nigerian princes, prince somewhere, you know, um, via Bernardo's, from uh, Dennis Wise from Shepherd's Bush down the road, to myself from... Um, a middle-class background and, uh, and a stalwart at Reading. You know, Dave Besant from uh, Wheelstone and, you know, literally born within the sight of the the tw- Twin Towers and coming to coming to work on a moped when he was six foot four. You can imagine, can imagine how he looked coming to work on a moped. And that group of players just came together at that exact time. And over a course of 10 years, 
tore the football book up. Um, broached. I mean, I always remember we went to um, we, we we got invited to this. I don't know what it was. This this tournament, this mid season tournament in San uh, San Sebastian, Santander. Sorry, um, we were playing Real Madrid. Real Madrid, Santander, and us in a three way tournament. Each played 45 minutes, so you've got a game out of it. So you played a half against Santander, half against Real Madrid, then Real Madrid played a half against Santander. So it was a full game. We um, we were leading Real Madrid at the time, 1-0 for a long spate of that 45 minutes before they got a couple of late goals. We were, we were, you know, if we'd have been in Europe, which we'd have qualified for the champ- or for the, for the Cup Winners' Cup that year, we'd have torn, torn, torn up a whole, um, you know, we'd have torn up trees through Europe that year. It'd have been interesting to see us playing in Europe, you know. Um, and that's the one thing of all that that I do regret that we weren't given the chance to compete against in the European in the European campaign because we were taking our story further than just um, the confines of the English league. The BT Sport documentary on the Crazy Gang really really enjoyed it, but it kind of opened my eyes to a different side of it. We were thinking of, or I was thinking of the pranks and hiding, cutting people's shoes and all that there, but. It looked as if life was very hard at Wimbledon. If you couldn't break into the group, you weren't accepted. It was a tough school. Um, I often say to people, today you'd say version of the verge of bullying to a certain extent, some of the stuff that went on with regard to what were considered weaker characters at the time. Um, and I, 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 even now I look back on it and I think some of the stuff that went on perhaps shouldn't have gone on or perhaps we should have taken a stronger line being the stronger uh you know, being the more forceful ones in the dressing room. But it was a survive. It was a survive. I mean, I remember speaking to Dave Bassett once about it. And um, his argument was, if you couldn't survive the dressing room, what chance had you of surviving in front of 72,000 people at Old Trafford? You know, when we had our backs against the wall with a team whose wage bill was about flaming one-tenth of theirs. You know, you had to have people that were that could stand up to, stand up to that type of... Um, and the one, one of the ways they did it was that there was a, a you know, a Darwinian thing in the dressing room. We, there was a, there was a survivor of the strongest to a certain extent, and, and people fell by the wayside. I mean, I know John Scowers wasn't very happy with his portrayal in that, in that documentary, um, because it didn't reflect very well on him. But I mean, you know, John then went on to Liverpool, became Player of the Year at Liverpool, four and a half million pound signing, went on to Tottenham, did a great job there, had a great career out of it. But he probably doesn't look back at his Wimbledon time with great affection because he did have a very, very tough time there. You know, certain people fell by the wayside. Ian Holloway was there for a Wimbledon for a year. People forget, don't even realise that Ian Holloway was there for a year. A lot of things conspired against Ian. You know, he had problems um, in his home life with regard to his wife being ill and the children and such like. But um, he had to go back to Bristol Rovers back in the third division before Jerry Francis brought him to QPR and he had 10 great years at QPR with Ray Wilkins. Yet he found the school at Wimbledon and if, he ever, if you ever ask him about Wimbledon, he, he doesn't look at it with any affection whatsoever because it was a tough time for him. Do you think in building top players and successful people, that resilience, you know, the, the bullying aside from it, that we need that resilience even though we don't like it? There's two schools of thought on that today, isn't it? Today the thought is, no, everything should be should be um, be all empathetic, that you should all be in it together and be spoke talked to. It's it's a different. I mean, I don't wanna I don't wanna sort of justify it, but it's a different era today. Um, we couldn't do the stuff. We certainly not with modern media, modern social media, modern uh, cameras, and everything. We couldn't do the stuff that we did thirty years ago. You couldn't get away with that now. But whatever happened, 
you know, people still talk about a group of players that, I mean, I remember speaking to a friend afterwards, his friend who was a journalist, he said that cup final won't be remembered. The goal wasn't that great a goal. The game wasn't particularly particularly good. And since then, I've done about three or four documentary on it. We've had a BT film and every year come cup final week, I'm dragged out somewhere to give a discussion, you know, talk about it. So, you know, it is remembered. It is one of those special... The, the crazy gang against the culture club, literally. And, and and on so many different levels, we were so inferior that we had to do something different to match that up. And sometimes some of the stuff to get to that props today wouldn't be considered appropriate, you know? Moving on to management then, you did something pretty unique for a professional footballer. You, you studied a degree at university, management science at Loughborough. I did. Were you? I'm just. I'm just starting an MBA um, oh. next week in, at Salford University in in Manchester. And I'm chief executive. Oh, congratulations! You know, I've always enjoyed education. Always enjoyed learning. Was that to prepare you as a manager, Laurie, or was that to open door for business opportunities? To be fair, at the time, I mean, I, I was playing the lower league side. I mean, how long my career would be, I didn't know. I'd always wanted to go to university to be first in my family to go to university. I got an offer from Loughborough. And I went to the manager at Reading. So I stayed, I, I finished my, I finished day level. I did my A-levels. I actually played for Reading when I was doing my A-levels. Ironically, made my debut against, Wimb- against Wimbledon um, with Dave Bassett, who like, became my manager, playing against me in the middle of the field. I stayed on the, fo- when I finished my A-levels, um, I joined Reading for a year. We got promoted. At the end of that year, I got offered a place at Loughborough. And um, I said to the manager, manager, I want to go to Loughborough. And he said, no worries, Laurie. I thought, I thought, well, that's my football career pretty much at an end. And he said, we'll give you a three-year contract. I signed a three-year contract. Used to travel down every weekend to to Reading, play, go back to Loughborough and study during the week. I mean, it worked out extremely well. You know, for those three years, I was pretty much a regular in the team. But it, with regard to future management, um, you know, I wasn't thinking at that stage about it. I was just thinking I needed to have something in my back pocket if my football career didn't take off. When we start coaching, we tend to take a lot of what we did when we were players into our early years. Did sure, you, yeah. Did you try and replicate the crazy gang? Um, did I? I've got to say, I mean, I, I although I was, I was, I'm tagged as a member of that crazy gang. I, I was always on the periphery, looking in. I was, I wouldn't say I was ever at the centre of what was going on, not with regard to the the antics that perhaps people remember and talk about. But I mean, I, I won't, I won't say I wasn't involved, but I was certainly not a major. I mean, I was a periphery member. Um, certainly on the football field, I was there to be counted, but off, off the field, some of the antics, I, I did look at them and think really, but that said, um, I don't think you can recreate that. I think, I think the style of football or the, 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 the actual football that we played and the way it was played and, and the thoughts behind it, I think are, are still very much. And I said to you, Leicester, um, proved it the other year that you can still be direct and still be successful um, if everybody buys into that scenario. Um, unfortunately, um, to a certain extent, it's uh, considered passe in, in this day of tiki-taki football. Um, so some of the stuff I, I, I certainly carried into my managerial career. Um, I was never able, I don't think, to generate an atmosphere that we like we had in, in, in the Wimbledon dressing room in that we're all in this, all in this together. Although we did have a cup run with Wickham, and to a certain extent, we had some results with Northern Ireland on their day. You know, stood stood in stood in their place for that. But um, as a natural dressing room, I don't think um, I don't think I've ever seen a dressing room exactly like we had at Wimbledon. No. So Northern Ireland, let's talk about changing a culture, taking over at Northern Ireland. 
1,300 minutes without scoring a goal, hadn't won a game for three years. What were the first areas you addressed taking over? Well, my first area, I mean, I said when I took over, there was three things I wanted to do, which was score a goal, which we did in our first game, although we lost um, 3-1 to Norway, I think it was. Um, The next thing I said was we wanted to win a game. Um, which we did in the game after that when we I think we beat um, Estonia away with a David Healy brace. And then the next thing I said was we wanted to improve the world rankings. And over the course of my time there, I mean, we went up 97 places. And, you know, when I left, I think by that stage, um, you know, they thought, the team thought that they could beat most people and, and had beaten Spain. Um, we beat beaten England. Uh, we beat Spain just before they went on their three tournament wins. Um, we beat England in the qu- first time for a qualifying campaign for generation. Um, you know, we bridged a hundred position gap to beat them and 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 deserve to win as well that game. So we we achieved a lot of things in Northern Ireland. I think I think the major thing we did was that the players from going from not wanting to turn up for some of them because they were getting beaten all the time and going back to their clubs and getting ribbed about it to players turning up. Then we went through the next phase of players actually winning games, and then we got to the next phase of. When I left, they were top of their World Cup qualifying group um, with a chance of going to that World Cup. Unfortunately, they, they slipped down and didn't and finished third. But I think it put into one or two of the players' minds, especially the younger players who I brought into the team, Steve Davis um, and such like that, uh, Johnny Evans, that, you know, it wasn't beyond the realms. Whereas before, when I took over a group that finished bottom of their group and scored a goal and won a game, yet somehow it accumulated four points, I think, which was quite an achievement on that basis. From, they, from that situation, they went to a situation where ultimately they qualified for a European Championship under Michael and, you know, not far off the World World Cup this time round as well, which was, you know, disappointing in the way it panned out. But I think that the change of mentality of the players or a lot of the players in that team, they believed what they could achieve rather than what they couldn't achieve. During that time, I took a coaching course in Belfast and you presented a session on attack and play. And then he gave a presentation on why you were doing it. I remember it so well. It was the first time I would ever have heard numbers associated with the game. You charted penalty box entries and you gave specifics on how you wanted crosses over hit and the balls recycled back into a disorganized penalty area. Um, 13, 14 years later, Laurie, have your thoughts changed on the game? Um. I, th- I think they're basic facts of life in, 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 in football. I, I think how you play or how you achieve it can be done differently, obviously, I mean, depending on what you say. But I see I see now, I see Mende play for Man City and I see Mende, um, I like Mende. I've, I've only seen him play two or three times, you know, on TV. He's crossing balls first time. I mean, he's coming on and whacking balls and he crosses terrific balls across the face of the goal. You know, the Arsenals of this world never crossed the ball. You didn't have to defend crosses with Arsenal. Um I remember playing. Uh, if I tell you a story about Aaron Hughes, I mean, on the Saturday, no, sorry, on the Saturday we we played. I can't remember we played. I think we lost to someone, um, and he cut his he cut his eye, and um, the doctor said I would have to go home because he had about eight stitches in his eye. I said, why would he have to go? Home? He said, well, he can't play. I said, why not? He said, well, he can't hit a ball. I said, we're playing Spain on Wednesday. He ain't gonna have to hit a ball, and we beat Spain three two that that Wednesday night. Um, and Aaron Hughes um, had headed one ball that night. That's all he had to head. He didn't pull out of headers. He just it was a one ball he had to head. Um, uh, so, you know, what that said was that Spain weren't exploiting an area. They they thought they were so good that they couldn't. They weren't exploiting an area of of width and crosses. 
um, when they had people, um, you know, when people in the box. So if you're going to cut that route off, you have to be very, very good at a lot of other routes not to have that that route. I think crossing is a is a, a crossing is an intricate part of football. I see Pep uses it now. I mean, I see, you know, when Arsenal when Arsenal played under Wenger, they never used it ever. They never crossed the ball. They always came back inside. I see, I see Arsenal. I see Man City now with Mendy. He doesn't think twice. He's crossing ball, so he's obviously been told to do that. So Pep himself is saying, yeah. You know, crosses have always been in part and part of football. Let's get him in the box when we got the opportunity. Get him in early. Get him. You haven't got to have big centre forwards. You get the ball in early behind. You saw Shaw's goal for England the other day when he set up Rashford. Fantastic cross from a left back. Across the back of the back four um, and Rashford can come onto it. So that that went out of fashion for a long time, crossing balls into the box. Because unless you had a big centre forward, you thought you couldn't achieve it. And obviously the growth has been to small the Agueras of this world, you know, type centre forwards. But um, it's coming back in a fashion led by people like Pep. So my, my feelings about football haven't changed an awful lot. I think I'm not particularly, I'm not particularly a pass it out of the back man. I don't particularly, I think that style of play can be stopped. Um, and Liverpool showed that against Man City when they pressed them right up the field and destroyed them. So I think it can be stopped. Um, obviously, when you've got a goalkeeper like Emerson that can flame and now deliver a ball 60 yards straight to your forward's chest, it gives you another out. Um, and exploiting that other out is, um, is is important. But the one thing I would say is that if, if a team's very good at one thing, um, stop them doing that thing and make them do something they're not very very good at. So what happened a lot was that the good teams that passed in the back, they got really pressed deep and down. And of course, then they were kicking the ball long and they weren't very good at it. Now, with the, goal, with the goalkeepers being told to be more technical you are getting goalkeepers and now can get around that by picking out players 60 yards up the field which is you know which is another thing in their armor so you know the game is always evolving i i, I it's it you know there's nothing new One, someone said to me there's nothing new in football and there isn't there's nothing new in football it's just a fashion of what goes what is in and what goes around and um you know as i say you, you see it with a throwing coach at liverpool now it's supposed to be state-of-the-art well um, we perhaps didn't have a throwing coach, but we certainly knew what throwings were about when we were playing, and we knew that they were important both for and against, and that you know you needed to win them back very, very quickly when other teams had them, and you made sure when you had the ball you didn't give them away, or if you did, you were giving it away because you were trying to create a goal-scoring opportunity. So, and the other thing, of course, from that thing is now stats are the be-all and end-all of football, aren't they? You know, with Opta and EA, um, everything is analysed to the nth degree. Um, and I, I was reading something the other day that. There are so many stats now. The interpretation of those stats is the most important thing. You know, midfielders can have 100% record passing 100 balls, but if the ball passes to their centre back and then back to them, I wouldn't say it was. It, I didn't wouldn't say it helped the game. Now, if their pass was in into a forward scored a goal, then obviously that has more credence than one that goes back to the centre half as it recycled back to them. Um, and you know, the interpretation of stats is now so important. But I think that the basics, you know, you do need a certain number of entries into a final third to score goals. Obviously, the best teams need less final third entries than the teams lower down in the league. But there, there are still there are still connections between the one and the other. Yeah, just on what you were saying earlier about the about teams today uh, wanting that set piece advantage and that Wimbledon team that. Again, that, that interview after the cup final, Don Howe said you spent two hours working on set pieces the day before a cup final. We we spent we spent every week working on set plays. We we weren't making up set plays of that 
for that on that day. We were just um, restyling them or m- making sure we were doing the runs right or you know reinforcing what we'd already done. And, you know that was the end of the season. By the end of the season, you don't spend you don't spend two hours on new free kicks. We were just reinforcing free kicks. But literally, <laughs> ironically, I scored in the last game of the home home against Chelsea the previous week at Plough Lane with a free kick similar. So you know it was just reinforcing those things. Um, and the analysis in then wasn't as good as it is now. I mean, you, you, you know, I scored 25 goals when I was at Wimbledon. I mean, if there's five or six of those goals on, on tape somewhere, I'd be amazed because there wasn't, you know, there wasn't the, the recollection there is now, you know, the video, the digital data where you could video every goal a kid, a kid scored from 15 onwards and he'll have it in his record book. Um, in those days, you, people went and watched, they wrote it down and then they sent it to the club. By the time the club read it and digested it, it could translate several times. But nowadays, you would never get away with scoring that type of goal because that's what we did week in, week out, and they'd, they'd have stopped it. Last question for you. Obviously, with, with your path, you believe in working your way up. You believe in the education side. What's your advice for young coaches who want to progress in the game today? To go on courses. Um, to be fair, you, you, modern, not so much for what you learn, because as I say, you often go to courses and think, well, I've learned a lot there. But for the people you meet at those courses, because on, on your way up, um, it's, it's always important to to, to interact, to socialise with people that perhaps, you know, at some stage in the future might remember you, might you might be able to use as a contact to get somewhere. So um, that that is important for young coaches. So get yourself on courses, see the bits you like and the bits you don't like, things you, bits you can use, but also socialise. Don't just go stand at the back of the queue and go out and talk to other people. Football people are football people. They talk to everybody, you know. Everybody has the same sort of problems, whether you be at Man City or playing in uh, Macclesfield. It's, 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 uh, so, and they're happy to discuss those with you. I mean, I'm sure if I wrote to Pep Guardiola, I'd say, come watch training. He'd say, yeah, sure, come in, come in. Not ma- in many other industries, that wouldn't happen, you know. The better they are, usually the more open they are. Well, the better they are, the less, the less worried they are about you um, nicking their jobs, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> because they, they know you ain't going to come and take their jobs. So I understand lower down if you're, a, you know, if I was to phone up someone at, say, you know, Macclesfield and say, can I come in and watch training? The first thing the manager would be thinking, why is he coming in? And the chief executive saying, well, what's he coming in? So there is that sort of worry about your job lower down. But at the top level, people are quite open. I mean, you know, the Klops and Guardiola's and uh, of this world are, are quite happy to show you what they do. Because by the time you learn what they do, they've refined it even further, you know? Mm. Plus, you're unlikely to have the players they've got to do it. So that, 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 that's, the other, that's the other scenario, that part of that scenario. Brilliant. Laurie, thank you so much for your time and insight today. And a special thank you for beating England back in the day. That was a big one. <laughs> no, yeah, thanks for um, the interview and good luck to you. Thanks so much to Laurie there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. A brilliant insight into one of the toughest and most overachieving cultures that, that you'll find in sports. I've been studying the game for a few years and studying different sports and trying to pick up on these different cultures. And I still don't think there's anything like that Wimbledon in the 1980s and it's sometimes it's a throwaway because of the style of football and, and we've turned into a little bit of football snob some days where we want the culture to be aligned with the style of play of Pep Guardiola but I think there's a real togetherness about that team and I think those those people achieved individually and collectively a lot more than a lot of people would have predicted they would have so um, that was brilliant loved hearing about that there one of the takeaways for me with Laurie was 
it was a couple of days since I recorded this and I wanted to to take those couple of days to think about this one because I disagreed with them at the time about the way that culture was shaped the way it was and it almost sounded from Laurie that it was just a case of everything clicking at the right time and and I'm not a big believer in luck or in things happening just a group of people coming together and liking each other and results going that way I think football's a lot harder than that there so that's why I want to take a couple of days and and in, in thinking about it you know I can see where he's coming from I think there's so many variables to a culture and they got all those variables right and some of them were intentional which would have been their style of play I think their recruitment I think they're in their daily behaviors in terms of their work rate and not dealing with anyone being bigger than the club. I, I would recommend anyone watching the BT Sport documentary on it because, again, we talk about cultures. We think the cultures is people coming together and agreeing with one another, but that was very much, um, in the in the documentary you've got Laurie and John Fashionu's story and and they they weren't exactly best friends and how they worked alongside that there to get the best out of one another and come together for the team is is really really powerful so really enjoyed that there the other side of it of course was what Laurie was saying there about the principles of the game not going out of fashion and again two days since I recorded that I went back and watched that cup final that 1988 cup final and we'd recommend that you do it if you can get beyond the back passes and the offside rules you know, a lot of the game has, there's a lot of similarities in terms of the way that team compressed space. And, and I always look, I watched it thinking, if that was played today, what would we be saying about that there? And, and the pressing from Wimbledon, the work rate from Wimbledon, the intensity from Wimbledon was absolutely brilliant. So, um, yeah, we don't have to find inspiration from every Saturday. You know, football didn't start five to ten years ago. There's a lot of good stuff in the game that maybe we should be looking at a little bit closer and taking a little bit more insight from people who were successful from a different generation. So really enjoyed that there. Um, thanks so much for listening. We'd love to know your thoughts on it, uh, what you agreed with, what resonated with you, maybe things you didn't agree with, um, anything like that there. Always love to hear your thoughts. Um, on Twitter at Gary Kernin, on Instagram at Gary Kernin. Please, please, please just shoot a rating out, a five star rating for the podcast. We'd be very appreciated. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. See you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, Head on over to Coach Kernin on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.